Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I want to get over to Marcus Moore. He's an assistant portfolio manager at Zio Capital Advisors. And let's go over the data that we've had and the data to come, Marcus, starting with the jobs report. What do you make of the you know strong numbers, but still weak, I guess, relatively percip- uh, participation um, amount there? Uh Thanks for having me. Um, and you know, I thought the the jobs number Friday was 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 encouraging. Um, you definitely saw a beginning of you know people coming back. Well, not from a participation rate standpoint, but the hiring is taking place. Um, you have fifty three thousand five hundred thirty one cap thousand jobs added, um, two hundred thirty five thousand in upper revisions. Uh, very strong wage growth, four point nine percent over the last year. I think that's up from anything we've seen over the last ten years prior. Um, and so there were some good things in the jobs report. Um, I think, to your point, one of the things that is somewhat discouraging is that the participation rate has stayed relatively flat. Um, and then and one of the things we think about as we think about these jobs numbers is the role of the Fed. And you saw minority, um, underrepresented minority employment lag relative to the larger index. And so that, for us, causes a question in terms of, like, where the Fed is willing to step in, right? Because Obviously, they've already acknowledged, and Powell did so last week, that inflation is going to run hotter for longer, even longer than they initially anticipated. But um, his, their focus has really been on this underrepresented minority um, employment. And if you look at the jobs report that came out Friday, there's still a ways to go there. And so the question I think that's on the top of our minds is just how long and what does the Fed need to see before that full employment test has been met? Because I think throughout 2022, they can easily say that the unemployment test will be made in terms of the net in terms of their ability to raise rates. Mark, as you mentioned, the the wage data, I think it's only like 5% gain year on year. And, you know, wage inflation is kind of representative of stickiness in inflation, right? But at the same time, you have the Fed betting that we see this mass return to employment that will help ease inflation in the wrong run because the supply side of the economy comes back on. Is the, re- is the Fed reading this data right in the interpretation of in the context of inflation? I think, I mean, again, there's so much noise. And I mean, I think I do not envy the job Jay Powell has right now in the Fed, largely because so much of big picture, I think they're right when they try to say transitory. Because, you know, we parse the word transitory 500 different ways. But what they're really trying to say is there are inflation factors that are just abnormal. And if you think about it, we started with a complete shutdown of the economy when the pandemic hit. The federal government provided significant amount of stimulus. Um, the Fed has provided significant amount of monetary stimulus to businesses. And then when there was a when we reopened, everyone had pent up demand. You know, everyone had been sitting in their house for anywhere from six months to you know a year, not traveling, not having access to the goods and services that they're used to. And so you took a supply chain that, you know, was starting from zero, but a demand curve that was, you know, well beyond where we would have, you know, started, um, where we would have ended before the pandemic because there was so much pent up demand. And so the Fed understands that a lot of the inflation we're seeing is simply that is, a, is relation to this really strong demand 
you know, matching up with basically the restarting of supply chains, mm. throw in the fact that you've seen additional disruption overseas right. and in the U.S. as virus cases have spiked, the Delta variant, et cetera. And yeah. so there's an element of the Fed that's sitting there saying a lot of this inflation isn't real. Now, yes, I do think that the wage inflation that you're seeing is going to be a real element that is going to continue on. But there's still parts of this that the Fed wants to parse out to figure out, like, what's real, what's fake. And I do think once you get supply chains fully online, you will start to see some of those pressures ease. Right. But again, that could be well into 2022. Right. And wage. The demand picture. Oh, go ahead. And, and wages aren't keeping up. Right. Um, right. What do you, what's your view on the markets then? When we look at right now, 4,700 all time high, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room left to run. Ed was talking about Goldman Sachs. They think we're only going to 4,900 by the end of next year. UBS says we're only going to 5,000 by the end of 2023. What do you think? Um, you know, over the last few weeks, uh, we at Zio have been kind of bouncing around this idea of peak everything, right? And it just feels that everything is at a peak. You've got wage growth at a peak that we've seen over the last 10 years. You've got the stock market at a peak. You've got inflation at peaks we haven't seen in a really long time. Um, it's a challenging market, and but you also have a backdrop in which, you know, companies are going to, you know, to date, I think the S&P 500 has generated 30% higher earnings on a year-over-year basis. And even if you go back to 3Q 2019 before the pandemic, I think you're up about 16, 17%, which is a solid uh, growth rate. So, I mean, there's a lot of competing forces in the market. Right now, the, mar the, 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 the focus, I think, is on the Fed that has basically said we're watching inflation, but we're not worried. And then you have this strong earnings growth. So you are seeing these kind of record highs. But I think, you know, our focus at Zio really has been on what are the risks of the downside. And I think the biggest risk of the downside is continued inflation, continued supply chain disruption, higher interest rates mm. as we run a fixed income portfolio. And so those are the things that we keep or have been staying very mindful of. And, you know, as we right. look at companies, one of the things we've liked to do is, as we've talked about this very tight wage in, um, environment, we've been looking at companies and how they historically have treated their employees. Yep. Because I think in this environment, those companies that tr have historically paid their employees well, treated them well, and had a high level of yep. morale, have a significant competitive advantage going forward. All right, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. Marcus Moore there from Zio Capital Advisors. This is Bloomberg. Let's shift gears a little, Matt Miller. Let's talk about the retail sector and bring in Mari Shaw, Senior Equity Analyst at Columbia Fred Needle Investments. And this is interesting because what I hear is a lot of bullishness on the street about the retail sector. And yet, these are the same companies, the same industry that are kind of fa faring the brunt of these higher input costs. So first question, Mari Shaw, what's the good news for Wall Street about retail this week, this coming week? Well, the good news is that overall sentiment from the companies remains very positive heading into the holidays. And I think we have to remember that these companies have been living with supply chain disruption for the past year and a half, and they have been planning well for it. And the companies have proven to be quite resilient. And I think um, from the investor standpoint, we really need to give both the companies and the consumer the benefit of the doubt. So the consumer has uh, saved up a lot during the pandemic, spent off some of that, but still has a ton of savings relative to, you know, the historical average. Um, there won't be any shortage of demand, will there, or cash this holiday season? 
Absolutely not. We still feel really positive about the overall health of the consumer. Of course, at the lower end, we've seen stimulus that has driven um, increased savings, and now the return to work and higher minimum wages is a positive for that consumer. At the higher income level, the wealth effect has been very significant, and that plus still a very strong job market and income potential is really driving strength across the board at all levels for the consumer. Very quickly, we're thinking about names in the next 10 days like Walmart, like Target. There's all these reports out there about the pull forward of e-commerce spending because of the pandemic. How well positioned are those companies in about 30 seconds to take advantage going into the holiday season? We feel really good about the companies that can use their scale to manage better through the current situation. And we've seen incredible share gains from both Target and Walmart throughout the pandemic. And we do think that those share gains will stick on the other side of it, especially as they're able to leverage their omni-channel capabilities and their um, penetration across different categories. And so especially now as companies are dealing with um, increased disruption in the supply chain, we feel really good about companies like Target and Walmart being able to leverage their scale. All right. Got to bear with me here. What's omni-channel mean again? Omni-channel is really the ability of the retailers to service the customer both in-store and online. And if you look at what um, some of the, well, really all retailers, but I would use Target as an example, what they've done with their um, drive-up and pick-up in-store, that has been um, a huge competitive advantage for them throughout the pandemic. We, we kind of touched on this, but I want to dig into the psychology of the consumer. You know, yeah, okay, everyone's flush with cash. But with all these higher input costs, what is the pain threshold for the consumer, in your view, to absorb those higher costs, to accept the level that these companies will pass on the costs to the consumer? I think it really varies by category. I think there are certain cat- categories like food where the prices are highly visible to the consumer. Think about things like milk and bananas that you're buying week in and week out, you see when the price increases. And it's very easy to substitute and potentially trade down in the food category. But in more discretionary categories, I'm very confident in the company's ability to pass through higher pricing. Um, And the truth is that they have been a lot less promotional throughout the pandemic. um, and And the consumer has still been buying the goods especially where there is strong brand and strong product innovation to um, to support the higher price. But the companies are all being very strategic and selective about the price increases that they do pass through. And, and just by being less promotional, they're also, in effect, taking pricing. And again, this is not something new. This is something that the companies have been doing for the past year or so. And I think that that's giving them the confidence to continue to um, selectively take pricing for some time to come, given that some of these cost pressures they're seeing now are transitory, but others like wage pressure that they're seeing are more structural. And well, you you, you don't see those prices reverting back either, do you, right? As soon as they get uh, increases, even in milk or bread, um, those stick. 
Absolutely. I think at some point we will see promotion start to normalize a little bit, especially when the supply comes back online. So you will see that happen. But again, I think the companies have really learned throughout the pandemic that they can do more with less and drive full price selling. And that has resulted in higher sales and gross margins. And that is something something that the companies do not want to give back, as you said. Mari, thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure having your insight today. Mari Shore, their senior equity analyst with Columbia Threadneedle. Let's get over to Matthew Palazzola right now. He's a senior analyst for property and casualty insurance from Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's going to talk to us about Warren Buffett signaling a little bit of wariness with a soaring stock market as he extends a selling streak. What do we know about Berkshire Hathaway, Matt? Yeah, we know that um, Berkshire Hathaway's third quarter results were pretty good. Uh, They followed the trend of the general economy. Things started picking back up at the end of last year and uh, kind of rolled through, you know, to higher than average pre-pandemic earnings. What I think is kind of a a concern for the next couple of quarters is going to be the supply chain's impact on their kind of vast array of businesses going forward. I do want to touch on that, but let's talk about the big issue, the best issue anyone can possibly have. Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway have too much money. They have so much money that they don't know what to do with it and they can't spend it on anything. Walk me through that one. So, so yeah, I mean, because of a consequence of these good earnings, they're just piling up cash, right? And from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Warren Buffett struck a very cautious tone on the market about the risk inherent in, in what's coming up. And they pretty much sat on their hands at the beginning of the pandemic. And at their last annual meeting, Buffett expressed remorse about doing that. He said, we should have, we should have been more active. Uh, but then I feel like they kind of got caught in a little bit of a trap because valuations did nothing but go up since then. And it just makes things less attractive if you look at his um, you know, established philosophy. All that said, though, I do think he could ignore valuation and make a best-in-class business deal if he sees it. So where do we see those kinds of deals. It's a big size. You can't see um, these elephants everywhere, can you? Yeah, no. I mean, so their cash is $149 billion, right? So they could pretty much buy almost anything they want. Um, I wouldn't want to speculate on where they're going to go because, you know, it could be anything. You know, Berkshire's businesses, you know, from owning a ton of Apple stock, they make airplane parts, they sell candy, they do pretty much everything under the sun. So, I wouldn't be surprised to see something come out of left field that maybe no one's ever heard of, you know, for a couple of billion dollars here and there. But to to make a huge dent in that cash pile, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. So let's go back to what you were discussing earlier, Berkshire Buffett view of the world, because the conglomerate touches so many parts of the economy, so many different industries and associated supply chains. What do we learn on that front? The third quarter results were good. I mean, supply chain was mentioned several times in the 10Q. Uh, It's it's affecting all of their businesses. I think what remains to be seen is how much those businesses can pass through costs to the consumer. I think think generally businesses are able to do that just because of the kind of strong 
uh, economy that you know people are willing to pay more for things. Um, but I think because of their their vast array of businesses, there's going to be some things that they just can't push along. I and mean, they're in they're in home building, and I, you know I don't know how much higher those prices can go if their materials you know keep going up. In, in terms of a, an end, do we get any signal from Buffett or from Berkshire as to how the supply chain crisis is going? You know how um, input costs uh, are rising. Is this is this going to soften anytime soon? You know they didn't really speculate on on the future or the longevity of it. I think I think we can see these issues last easily through through next year, given all the businesses they're in. They, one of their biggest businesses is they make airplane parts, precision airplane parts. And, you know, that market, even though travel is coming back, uh, you know, the market has yet to rebound. And even if it does, they're having trouble um, sourcing the parts for that business. Precision airplane parts are the best kind, you know, because I hate when people just make rough guesstimates. And they're producing pieces for planes. It just doesn't work as well. One of those. Um, yeah. Precision cast parts. What do they make? They make that. Those are those are the precision auto parts that they they do make. Ah. Um, and that and that's that's kind of one of those businesses that that frankly you may have never heard of, but has this kind of huge global near monopoly in these kind of. And when I say precision, you know, it's there probably are parts on the plane that are not exactly precision, right? Like if you're talking about just kind of a piece of metal for the wing, maybe that's not as precision as some of the instruments that go in the cockpit. You know, and that's, I that's know. I was, I was just joking around a little bit, but um, yeah, no, I've, I've been flying a lot lately, uh, I guess, relative to during the lockdown. And I feel like a lot of it is imprecise, but yes, um, they don't crash. They don't fall out of the sky very often. So they should be put together pretty well. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Great to get your insight on Berkshire Hathaway. Matthew Palazzola there is a senior analyst, property and casualty insurance. And of course, Berkshire Hathaway is still in the insurance business as well as all of the other stuff that they do. All right. You you mentioned vacation, and I want to bring in our next guest right now. Matt Roberts joins us. He's the CEO of Vacesa, formerly um, running Open Table. So is he a lot of he has a lot of experience in these businesses. And Matt, I guess um, Vacasa is a, a portmanteau. Is that what it's called? Portmanteau? A portman? It's a combination of two words, I guess. Vacation and casa, right? What do you do? Yeah, that's that, that's right. Uh, yeah, no, we are focused on, first, thanks for having me on. We are focused on uh, the supply side of the vacation rental equation. Uh, we both have, you know, we have over 30,000 properties. We're the largest in the nation. Uh, and what we do is we bring online uh, nights for people to rent at vacation rentals. And so we, we then retail that on our own site, but we also do it on uh, Verbo, Booking, Airbnb, et cetera. Matt, you heard Matt and I just talking about the great reopening of the transatlantic route. What is the demand? You know, what are you seeing November 8 onward from Europeans, from Brits that want to come to the United States for vacation, to visit loved ones, whatever it may be? Yeah, really excited to, to see the reopening. And it's going to, in our opinion, just add to the already incredibly strong demand that we're seeing. Uh, our business is booming and, you know, we just happen to be focusing also on the hottest segment of the entire 
uh, travel industry right now, which is vacation rentals. You know, what we're seeing is more and more people are going to travel over the holidays, uh, especially folks with young children. I think that's like 65% are planning on traveling. Uh, so this incremental demand on top of an already very, very healthy market uh, is is a welcome to uh, you know, to, to all of us in this industry. Healthy and changing, right? I mean, you mentioned um, you do your own business, but you also work through Verbo and Airbnb. I, I, I had a wedding in uh, Valencia last month, and so many guests were poo-pooing the you know, uh, standard hotel reservation and looking immediately instead for other rentals. So how much has this market changed? I think it's changed quite a bit. Uh, it has changed a lot, not just over the pandemic, but really over the last decade. Uh, it's grown at two times. Vacation rentals is two times the growth rate of traditional accommodations. And now that you're seeing post-pandemic or in-pandemic changes to the way people are working and traveling, there's more four-day weekends available. People can work from anywhere. Uh, you know, homes are just the logical choice for that type of flexibility. Can we talk a little bit quickly about the holiday season? You know, it's really interesting. Is there any sort of geographical split for where the demand is in the United States? Is it literally holiday traffic, holiday season traffic that's driving sales? That's right. Again, a continuation of, of the strong demand we had all the way through the summer season. Uh, 72% of travelers are still opting to drive to their destination. So that part of the of the pandemic is is still really strong. It's a long way to Napa Valley, Matt. It's a long way to Napa Valley. Yeah, (laughs) a long way to Napa Valley, exactly. Um, But we're also seeing just in general confidence level is way up. Uh, And, you know, before they said, like, if there was a spike in in any kind of COVID cases, only 49% said they would change their plans. And that was compared to nearly 75% would change their plans before. So there's just this increased confidence level not just in the holiday season, but 63% of Americans said that they would plan to take a trip in 22. And 82% of those said they're going to travel more in 22 than 21. Just people are very much uh, excited to get back to a more normalized travel environment. Everybody wants to get out there. Everybody wants to do a SPAC merger. You have one of the TPG Pace Solutions. Why do you choose that instead of a traditional IPO? Well, look, the end result is the same. We're going to be uh, trading on NASDAQ under VTSA. Uh, the approach was really partner-based. TPG Pay Solutions has has just a great, uh, been great business partners for us. And, and you know, uh, Carl Peterson was the co-founder of Hotwire. He's going to be joining our board. It very much looks like a traditional IPO, though. I mean, there's really, there's no warrants. There's no selling shareholders. Relatively low float relative to uh, to the overall market cap. So I, I think it'll perform very much like a traditional IPO uh, in the end. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Matt Roberts there, the chief executive officer of ACASA, talking to us about travel. Ed Ludlow, our intrepid tech reporter, joining me this hour. Uh, thank you very much out of San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.